All right. Hello. I'm just going to welcome. I'm just going to send you a promotion to panelists. Thank you, everyone who is joining. We are now live on both Zoom and Facebook, and class will begin when Dr. Gaffney returns. Uh, if you are here today, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, this is the this is the start of the um, post-Sphera Springs Mom at Drisha. And today we have the pleasure of learning with Dr. Gaffney, a much beloved returning teacher, um, with the class, the Torah in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretation. Uh, this class, um, no sooner had the Bible as we know it been canonized than its interpretation became the subject of fierce debate between Jews and the nascent Christian church. Centuries later, with the arrival on the scene of Islam, the battle still ranged, and now all three major monotheistic religions took part in the polemics. In this course, we will discuss these diverse conceptions of biblical meaning. In addition, we will explore the pivotal role that these early disputes played in the evolution of modern interpretive approaches to the biblical text. What a uh, few points of housekeeping. People watching on Zoom should feel free to ask questions in chat. I will be monitoring the chat for answers and share them with Dr. Gaffney at times that are appropriate for pausing questions. I am also, if you are watching on Facebook Live, Thank you. We're, it's a pleasure to have you. Please feel welcome to ask questions in the chat box. That chat is also monitored and will be shared with Dr. Gaffney at appropriate times. And if you are on Zoom, I will be sending promotions to panelists. Um, you, this way you can ask questions directly much easier without having to ask for permission. You can also turn on your camera should you so wish. All I ask is that if you are not actively speaking to please mute yourself. Otherwise, we have audio feedback. And if you are interested in learning more about Grisha's ongoing spring classes, we have many, we have several classes beginning this week. We've already started with Dr. Sutton's class with, with a Mishnah class on Joel Silver, our adult Talmud class, and here. If, if these classes and more sound interesting to you, I'm happy to post, and I will be posting the link to our, on, to our other spring courses in the chat. We will begin when Dr. Gaffney returns who has just returned. And it's always a pleasure to have you here learning with us, learning with you again and teaching with us here. And we are live, on, as, as mentioned, we're live on Facebook and we're on Zoom and ready to start whenever you are. Okay, thank you so much. You hear me? Okay, so uh, in this moment in uh, Yerushalayim where I am, uh, we're starting the Eruim, the ceremonies of Yom HaShoah. So I decided, I thought that it would be proper at least to dedicate a few moments of this uh, opening session. Uh, so I'll just uh, start with a few words on that and then we'll immediately uh, move into the class itself. So uh, a brief story. In uh, 1946, soon after the war ends, Jews are starting to uh, return back to their homes in all, all sorts of countries all over Europe and also in Germany itself. In uh, Munich, in the year 1946, just imagine a year after the war is over, uh, the community is starting to build up again. Uh, refugees from all over Europe come back to their homes in, in Munich and also others. And uh, one of the local rabbis of the town decides that he's going to publish his Sidur, his uh, Sidur Tfilah, uh, which appeared in Munich. You see here it says on the, on the cover page, uh, it appeared 
in Munich in 1946, the year after the war. And in this Sidur, uh, he's also dedicating a few pages. The Sidur already existed in some form before the war, but he's making a new edition of this Sidur. And the Sidur is dedicated, you see, so it's dedicated to the people who were killed by the Nazis uh, between the years uh, 1930 or 1940-1945. In the Sidur itself, he also adds a few pages. And he also mentions this in the front page, but also in the book itself. You have a few pages that he puts uh, in the book itself in the course of the in the in the book of the Sidur in the course of the between the different filot, and that is. So people had this luach or a, a place where they could also uh, list their own relatives that they lost during the war. And there are eight pages of those uh, lists in the Sidur itself. Each one of those pages says, You were supposed to fill in the missing name. So-and-so in the year, so-and-so in the name of the city as well. You can just imagine that people back then didn't even know the extent of the of the uh, how many people were killed and which family members of theirs they lost in the course of time more and more names were probably filled in this sidu appeared only once in 1946 and i thought it was proper that we can also uh, dedicate our shiu, uh, for the memory of the people uh, that we lost in my uh, personal case in my family so this is the the list of the names that we lost in my ancestors, from especially from my mother's side, Mishpachat Eisenman. So I'm going to read their names, and we'll, we can say that this limud that we're having today is going to be Lezecher uh, Anishamot. So I'll read Lezecher Anishamot Bnei Mishpachat Achaver, Rabbi Yaakov Alevi Eisenman, Ishto Marat Dina Lebet Prince, Bito Marat Miriam, Eshet Rabbi Chaim Brinkman, Veiladea, Bno Rabbi Shmuel Menachem, Veishto Elza Lebet Plam, Veiladehem. ביתר בני משפחתו משפחת פרינס שנהרגו על קידוש השם בשואת אירופה בשנים תשנ"ב, so it's 1942, תשנ"ד, 1944, השם ייקום דמם, תהיה נשמתם צרורה בצורה חיים. So uh, I'll say a few words of introduction. We'll talk about the idea of this course and uh, we'll continue. So this course, as the name indicates, is discussing the Torah as being interpreted by both Jewish, Christian, and uh, Islamic types of, or modes of interpretation. And I wanna say a few words about of the nature of this course. Uh, for those of you uh, who were here in the previous semester, so in the previous semester, we already started discussing the different religious perspectives on the Bible uh, from the these from the three uh, important religions, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And uh, what we're trying to do then is talk about the different approaches to the text of the Bible, to the which is the considered the most authentic or authorized text of the Bible, and what uh, did each one of these religious communities think about the authenticity of that text? Which text did they believe to be the most precise? original. So that was the theme we've discussed then. And this course, in a sense, is continuing, although it could be, uh, we can learn this also independently, but in a sense, it also could also be viewed as, in, as a continuation. But rather than discussing this time the text itself, the technical aspect of the existence or accuracy of the words of the text itself, now we're going to talk about 
uh, another layer, and that involves the interpretation, the meaning of the of the of the Bible, or more specifically, the Torah. How did each of these three religious communities understand or attempt to decipher the meaning of the text, each religion and its own perspective? Uh, We've touched on some of these themes also in previous years, but now we're gonna start it focusing on uh, the Jewish, Christian and Islamic interpretations and also uh, the dialogue, polemics that took place between these three uh, religions, the different perspectives and also how they interact or how do they uh, address uh, their opponent's approach to the Bible. So we're not gonna talk about each religion, religion independently, but also the dialogue that is taking place uh, between all these three groups, the, these three parties. So this is essentially the goal of this course. In terms of time frame, we're now going to move on uh, to current times. We're only going to discuss the interpretations in antiquity, and also briefly we'll address the medieval approaches to these texts. Obviously, uh, in the course of six meetings, we cannot cover this entire theme, but at least get a little bit of a sense of the dominant prevailing Jewish, Christian, and Islamic approaches uh, to the Bible. We'll try to provide mainly examples from the Torah, although a lot of the stuff we're gonna say here are also, is, also, are, is also relevant to the Bible as whole. But we're gonna focus the examples that we will talk will provide will be uh, taken mainly from the Torah itself. Okay, so that's the general idea of this course. And I wanna proceed and give us a brief sense of the outline of what we're gonna do. So. The course itself has only six sessions. It's really not a lot of time to cover such a big theme, even briefly, even to provide a brief survey of this topic. But still, I was trying to uh, come up with a basic outline that will give us a balanced picture of, uh, of, this, of this story. So what we will do, we will start with a brief introduction, trying to characterize in general terms, what is traditional type of interpretation in, in contrast to modern critical scholarly type of interpretations. So that's gonna be a brief introduction. From there, we're gonna talk about Jewish readings of the Torah. That will be the first session today's class. We'll talk about Christian readings of the Torah. How did Christians attempt to understand the text? We'll talk about Jewish and Christian debates. So what is the right mode of interpretation? How did Jews react to the Christian way of reading the Bible? And how did uh, Christians react to the Jewish way? So we'll talk about Jewish-Christian debates in antiquity and also in medieval period. Then we will introduce our third party, Islamic readings of the Torah, both in the Quran itself and later on in, post, in later medieval Islamic literature. And here too, we will end by talking about Jewish and Islamic polemics, how to understand the text. We'll conclude with some general uh, remarks on the entire uh, picture that we will uh, sketch in the course of these sessions. Okay, so it will be more or less balanced, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Obviously, our main focus will be on Jewish readings and their reaction to alternative or competing ways of, of understanding the text. So this is the general uh, picture. What I want to start with now is, in the introduction, is talk about the differences between traditional and critical ways of understanding a text. Okay, so this is gonna be the theme for today's class, for the beginning of our today's class, uh, introducing the differences between traditional and critical ways of understanding a text. So we'll start with a critical mode of interpretation. How do critical scholars interpret a text? 
and in what way are they different than the way that traditional people tend to read the text. So here you see two illustrations of a scholar. I hope you can tell which, which is which. So you see a scholar and you see a rabbi here. And these two are supposed to present these two types of understandings. And I wanna start with a critical way of thinking about the Bible and then, or of a text, and then um, talk about the differences between that and the traditional mode of thinking. So how do critical scholars attempt to decipher a text? What's gonna be the guide, the goal, or the, the target that a, of, a, of a scholar when he's interpreting any text and also when he's dealing with the Bible. What's gonna be considered an accurate interpretation of a text? What's the goal of an interpreter from a critical perspective? Anybody wants to comment? We don't have too many participants, so I, it might leave a lot of these answers for myself, but if anybody wants to comment or suggest an idea, what would be, uh, a critical way of interpreting a text. What's the goal of a scholar when he's interpreting a text? What would he define as an accurate interpretation of a text? Um, something I want to highlight from chat from uh, Willow Noah is perhaps to disprove it. But how do we know what's going to be the goal or what's going to be the, the right interpretation of a text? How would we define the accurate, the precise way of understanding uh, a text? So let me suggest, at least uh, many, many scholars would say, that from a critical perspective, the right interpretation of the text, the accurate, an accurate interpretation of a text, is getting as close as possible to the original meaning of the author, right? We're trying to understand, to get into the mindset of the author and try to get as close as possible to his original intention when composing uh, whatever text we're dealing with, right? That should be, that would be a fair, uh, definition of a, of a critical way of understanding a text. I'm not saying this is an easy task, especially when we're dealing with ancient texts, you know, thousands of years apart. It's not easy to get to the mindset of an ancient author from so many years back, but at least that's the goal we're trying to uh, achieve. In order to do, meet that goal, what do we do? So what would be the means that could help, that could contribute in this, in fulfilling this mission? Uh, how can we get to understand an ancient text that was composed so many years back? So scholars probably recommend, and this is not just a, a theoretical thing. If you go to the university and you want to take a, a, be an expert in biblical studies, so they would recommend that you need to learn ancient languages, for example, so you get a better sense of ancient, of the, the language of the text in which the text was composed. Maybe they would even recommend studying ancient history, learning about ancient cultures, by doing that, you're trying, in a sense, to forget your current uh, location or your, current, uh, your own environment in the 21st century, move back in time, in some, sometimes uh, geographically also, and uh, try to get as close as possible to the mindset of, the, of this ancient author that you're dealing with. That's probably the way that a critical scholars, that critical scholars might define their mission or their goal understanding, deciphering the text according to, their orig to its original meaning. And now we want to move back to the traditional uh, way of thinking of the text. And this is not just about the Jewish interpretation. It could be any religious interpretation of a text. And I want to start by asking, wouldn't every traditional person also say that his goal is to understand the original meaning of the text, but he's trying to get as close as possible to the original meaning or intention of, a, of the text that he's interpreting, we would think that any interpreter uh, 
would say that this is, would declare that this is what he's trying to get to. So in what way are traditional interpreters different than critical interpreters? Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question. I was thinking about how to formulate and how to define the gap between traditional and critical ways of understanding a text uh, for a long time. And I think that one uh, important distinction that separates between these two is that traditional people, although they declare that they're trying to understand the original meaning of the text, they also have an extra assumption or an extra We also believe, since we're dealing with divine texts, the text that comes from God, they believe that this text is also uh, still accurate, true, relevant. It's not a text that remains in the past. In a sense, this is an everlasting text. It's a text, the text that was composed many, many thousands of years ago, but still bears the truth because it comes from God. And if God is the author of this text, we want to assume that this is an everlasting text because God's wisdom is not limited to a certain time or place or culture. It should be an uh, everlasting uh, idea or everlasting composition. It conveys the truth. And when we assume that, when we take this as divine, and when we assume that this it, it, uh, bears this timeless truth, it affects very drastically how we read this text. Because very often when we read the text, we come across things, certain ideas in all sorts of realms that uh, contradict what we believe in or what sounds reasonable to us in modern times. Uh, let's come up, for example, from scientific perspective. Uh, what we know today about the Bible, what we know, I'm sorry, today about the world from a scientific perspective is very, very different than the facts that one can derive from the Bible. Can you think of any scientific information that is presented in the Bible that contradicts what modern scholars might believe in nowadays. Any scientific information, scientific data. Uh, yeah. How, she, how uh, pattern inheritance in sheep work, in sheep husbandry. Okay, so you're talking about the, the, the morals, if I understand you correctly. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm starting even before the moral, the ethical part. From a scientific perspective, does the Bible present accurate scientific facts about the world, about the plant, our planet, about its history? Many scholars will say no. For example, the story of creation. Modern scientists often think that the world was created in a very different fashion or manner than the Bible itself describes. Uh, the body, the human body, the autonomy of the Bible is very different than what modern doctors think today, right? The, the heart is not considered where our emotions are, the way the Bible thinks. Our kidneys are not where our, our consciousness lays. Or all sorts of uh, scientific information the Bible would present that, it, that does not go, that contradicts what we believe in from a modern scholarly perspective, from a scientific perspective. That's just on one level. Now, for scholars, that's not a big deal. Because scholars will say, okay, the Bible presents what the auth what people thought back then. We can understand it according to the mindset of its author. I mean, we're not obligated to accept what it says. This is a reflection of some ancient idea that remains in the past. But from a traditional perspective, that's a great dilemma. That's a big challenge because we don't just view this as some ancient primitive idea that somebody thought 
thousands of years ago. We think that this is God's words and it's supposed to be authentic. It's supposed to be accurate. It's supposed to be true from a scientific perspective. And then often traditional people will try to bend the words of the text or to reinterpret them in such a way that it goes together with what they believe is accurate from a scientific perspective. And here we see how the traditional uh, interpretation departs from the one of the, of the, from the critical mode of thinking because traditional people are not just obligated to understanding the text within its historical context. They're also trying to bridge between what the text is saying and what they believe is true because it comes from God and God presents the truth. Uh, this is an idea from a, from a, from a scientific, the idea I brought now is from a scientific perspective, but it could also be belong in other realms from an ethical perspective. Is the Bible presenting ideas that would be considered ethical from 21st in 21st century uh, by the 21st century norms. We can come up with many, many laws or ideas that the Bible presents that probably would not be considered uh, morally or ethical moral, uh, in, in modern eyes. Uh, Kyla, you were saying, uh, you brought some examples. We can think of slavery, gender issues, all sorts of issues that the Bible is not really speaking in what we think to be modern language. And again, for scholars, it's not a big deal because scholars will say, that's what the people used to think back then. We're not obligated to this type of truth, to their ideas. It's a very interesting reflection of primitive societies. And thank God we're not there anymore. But from, for traditional people, it's obviously a much bigger challenge because we feel obligated to defend this text, to defend these values because they seem to come from God, they're divine. And if they're divine, they're supposed to be timeless. And here too, we see how traditional people need to struggle uh, defending the text and often it affects how they interpret the Bible. So this is a very brief uh, attempt to talk about one uh, big difference between critical and traditional ways of reading the text. So I'm summarizing what, I've, what we said so far. Critical scholars are only interested in understanding the text within its historical uh, context. They read the text within the time and place that it was composed, not trying to bring the text from the past to the present or to the future. Whereas traditional people feel, no, this text does not remain in the past. This is an ever-living text. Whatever we find in this text must be relevant for us, must be true, must be applicable, must be inspiring even for later generations because it comes from God. So this is an everlasting text. And this text uh, does not stay, or does not remain back then. What we're gonna do today is talk about Jewish, in this course, we're gonna talk about Jewish, Christian, and Islamic ways of understanding the Bible. And we can already say one big statement about everything that we will see so in the future sessions. And I think it would be right or fair uh, uh, statement to make that all the interpretations that are, were provided both by Jews, by Christians and by Muslims were all traditional ways of reading the Bible. All three religions viewed the Bible and the Torah as part of the Bible as something that comes from God. And if it comes from God, it's not just some primitive uh, information that is provided there. They felt this text is a text that remains valid, remains meaningful, remains accurate, remains inspiring for all generations. So all the, all the uh, 
types of interpretation that we will discuss in this course are all traditional ways of reading the Bible. They all view this as a divine text and therefore timeless text, text that speaks to us, not just to people back then. However, traditional people still have very, very different ways of understanding the Bible because different religious communities have different challenges. They're bothered, disturbed by different things. The Bible might, they might make the Bible be meaningful to their own time and place in different ways or in different, uh, use different models, how to read the Bible. And therefore, although all the uh, interpretations that we will discuss in this course are gonna be traditional, it does not mean that they're made in what are identical, that they're similar. And part of the dilemma, part of the battle that we will discuss in this course is the different types of interpretations and how they uh, interact, both Jewish, Christian, and Islamic ways of reading this text. Uh, today, what we will do is deal with stuff that we're more familiar with, at least a little more familiar with, and that is uh, the Jewish ways of viewing the Bible. So this is what we're gonna do today. So the, as you see uh, within the big picture today, we'll devote our attention to Jewish readings of the Torah. How do Jews understand? How did Jews decipher? How did Jews interpret the Torah in antiquity? So if I were uh, to ask you the following question, let's say you're writing a paper. You don't have to write papers in this course, but uh, supposedly you had to write a paper. And I would ask you, uh, to give me a brief survey, where can one find interpretations, under readings of the Torah or of the Bible in general in antiquity? And I'll say antiquity ends with the year, let's say up to the year 500 CE. So where can one find Jewish interpretations to the Bible in this time frame? within this time frame, Where, where are those Jewish interpretations to be found? Which books, which compositions present the Jewish way of reading the Bible. Give me some examples. Where? Which books are useful for, let's say you want to tell, write a paper about Jewish interpretations of the story of the flood. Where can you find interpretations of the story in Jewish, in, in Jewish uh, ancient interpretations? Which Jewish literature presents uh, the way that Jews understood these stories back then, up to the year 500 CE? Where? Which compositions, which book should I go and look into in the library? Give me some ideas. Where are all the Jewish interpretations found? What are the most ancient Jewish interpretations of the Bible? Where are they? Um, comment from the chat, Mishnah. Okay, so you're talking about Rabbinic literature. Mishnah is one example of a large corpus called rabbinic literature. Rabbinic literature is certainly the most famous, what became the prevailing uh, text or corpus of interpretations of, uh, of the Bible among Jews, but it's certainly not the only one. So I want uh, to give us a brief survey. Where can one find ancient interpretations to the Bible? And we will see that we're actually speaking about a large, a big variety of texts in which Jews uh, try to understand or exhibit the way that they uh, understood the Bible. So where does it start? So the most ancient form of interpretation of the Bible is probably found in the Bible itself. 
what sometimes scholars call interbiblical interpretation. What does that mean? Very often, you read two different books in the Bible, two different texts in the Bible, and one, the later one, might reflect or interpret an earlier text. So in a sense, we can say that the Bible itself is its own interpreter, perhaps the most ancient Jewish interpretation of the Bible itself. I'll give you an example. In Psalms, Sefer Tehillim, there are many, many uh, chapters, Mizmorim, that talk about the story of the, ex the story of uh, Yetziat Mitzrayim, Exodus, right? This is a text from Sefer Tehillim. It's a liturgical text speaking about the story of Exodus. So here we have an interpretation or a take on the biblical story from the Torah in Sefer Tehillim, in Psalms. So this is one example, and we have many, many numerous examples where the Bible interprets itself. So the most ancient Jewish interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. Post-biblical interpretations, what, what do we have here? So again, we have a very, very big variety of texts. It's not just the Mishnah. It's not just the Talmud. It's not just rabbinic literature. It's many, many compositions. Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha is another good example. There are many, many books composed by Jews in antiquity, most of them before Common Era, BCE, uh, that didn't make it into the Bible. Some of them are called, they were part of the Bible in some communities, but they didn't make it to the mainstream version of the Bible that we, we uh, use nowadays, the Masoretic text. We have 24 books in the Bible, but there are other versions of the Bible that included more books that didn't make it eventually, that didn't survive in our versions of the Bible. They're called Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha. We will not uh, discuss these books at length because this is really not the theme of this course. But in these books, all ancient compositions written by Jews, we have various interpretations of stories in the Torah and also in other books of the Bible. One example, uh, there's one, a book called the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees is part of the Pseudopigrapha, again, a whole collection of compositions. And this book did not survive in Hebrew, only in ancient Ethiopian, uh, in Gez. But uh, this book was composed by Jews, and it's a, a form of interpretation to the book of Genesis. It was composed probably in the second century BCE by Jews. So this is a very ancient example of a Jewish interpretation to the Bible. Uh, another example, there's a book called The Testaments of the Twelve Tribes. Another book that didn't make it into the Bible, but somebody in antiquity, some Jew in antiquity, we don't even know his name, wrote uh, a full composition that is devoted to describing uh, the stories of each of the 12 tribes from his perspective as a form of autobiography. So each one of the 12 tribes, Reuben, uh, Simon, Levi, all of these people, they come and they tell their story from their perspective. Again, a composition that was composed second century BCE, very early by Jews and if we don't, you don't have to view this as a divine text, but certainly as a form of interpretation provided to the story, a take on the stories that was written by some Jew in antiquity. So these are, and this is another collection of essays that uh, present us with some Jewish ancient interpretation to the stories of the Bible. Uh, I'm continuing uh, the next example, the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. I'm sure you heard about the, this massive collections of scrolls. They too 
uh, include among, in addition to biblical texts themselves that were found in the caves, many, many interpretations of the texts. Uh, again, this is a whole theme for the entire course. We're not gonna talk about the Desi Scrolls now, but this is another collection of essays all coming from the last centuries before the destruction of the temple, probably up to the first century CE. Jewish Hellenistic literature. What is Jewish Hellenistic literature? Jewish Hellenistic literature is a whole corpus of texts that were composed, that was composed by Jews on the one hand, but written in Greek. That's why they're called Jewish Hellenistic literature, but it's not just a technical uh, uh, Hellenistic fact that it's written in Greek. It's also inspired or influenced by the Hellenistic way of thinking of things. Uh, to give an example for this, uh, the historical compositions of Josephus from the first century are part of the Jewish Hellenistic literature composed by a Jew, Josephus, written in Greek. And they're also a form of interpretation to the Bible. In Josephus's book, Antiquities of the Jews, he starts the story from, the, he's presenting the history of the Jewish people starting from the creation, explaining or interpreting the story of creation, the forefathers, the story of Exodus, all the way up to his own time. And in that sense, uh, Josephus' composition is also a form of interpretation of his understanding of the Bible. Ancient translations of the Bible are also a form of a Jewish interpretation to the, of the text. There are numerous translations of the Bibles in, in antiquity, and especially of the Torah. What languages was the Torah translated by Jews in antiquity? The Torah is in Hebrew mostly. So to what language, into what language was the Torah translated by Jews in antiquity? Which languages? I see here, you're, uh, one of the answers Aramaic, so it's, it's true. For example, the translation of Onkelus is one example, or the translation of Pseudo-Jonathan, another Palestinian translation into Aramaic. We also have the Septuagint. Septuagint is also a Jewish translation of the Bible into Greek. Uh, so this is another example. All these translations are also a form of interpretation because you all know when you translate a text, by definition, you're also interpreting that text. You can't translate it, translate a text without having some input on the way you understand the text. And this is even more true in ancient translations where people even felt that they have the liberty of departing from the literal translation of the literal uh, original text and even expanding a little bit, especially in Pseudo-Jonathan, sometimes you, feel, you see uh, long passages, even if the original text is just a few words. So translations are another form of ancient Jewish interpretations. All of these belong to the first centuries or even sometimes to the last centuries BCE. Finally, we get to Kaila's uh, Mishnah, what you were saying before, rabbinic literature. That's what we're more familiar with. The Mishnah, the Talmud, the Midrash, Midrash Halachad, legal Midrashim, Midrash Agadah, the non-legal text. They're all part of what we call rabbinic literature let's say from the first century up to the fifth, sixth century uh, in Palestine and in Babylon mostly, all of them also present uh, interpretations of Jews, in this case, rabbis uh, to the Bible, of the Bible. So rabbinic literature is another example, another 
massive collection of interpretations of the Bible. We're continuing poetry uh, in, in the first few centuries. Many Jews composed for liturgical purposes all sorts of uh, poetic texts that also reflect their understanding of the Bible. In many, many synagogues in Palestine in the first few centuries, people would recite poetic texts in the synagogue as part of the prayer, as part of the service on Shabbat. They would read from the Torah, but also provide poetic texts that accompany the reading of the text, which present their way of understanding the Bible. Uh, here too, we can think of all sorts of examples. Uh, Yanai has his own, uh, uh, his own uh, contribution in this realm. He's the most famous Paitan uh, writer. We have uh, people like Eliezer uh, Akalil a little bit later, uh, and many, many others. The, the earlier ones are not known by name, and the later ones already are, became more famous. A lot of these texts were discovered in the Gniza in Cairo. And we're talking about a massive collection of, of, uh, of texts. And many of them also reflect understandings, uh, the author's understanding of the Bible, his take, their take on the Bible. Finally, uh, archeology span is also sometimes a form of interpretation. If you find the uh, uh, mosaics, of a specific episode or scene from the Bible. The story of the binding of Isaac, for example, is depicted in uh, mosaics in Beit Alpha in Israel or in Sipori in the north, in the Galilee. So you have it in uh, a visual understanding of the text. Also, uh, when we find Tfilin in the Dead Sea, that's also a form of interpretation. It conveys how did people understand the commandment of tying something around your hand because that's a physical, uh, remnant or, or uh, element that survived from uh, back then. So these are just some of the ancient types of interpretations that we can find, forms of interpretations that one can find. If he wants to write a massive paper about the story of the flood of Noah, so you see it's not just rabbinic literature, it's not just Midrashim. You find so many types of interpretations in all sorts of texts. In most Jewish schools today, they do part of rabbinic literature. They're only concentrated on rabbinic literature and not even in, on the entire corpus. They focus on very specific texts, but the variety of ancient texts, and I'm not, obviously I'm not addressing here medieval texts like Rashi or Ramban. I'm talking about most ancient texts. We're speaking about a very, very uh, wide range of compositions. And they all have one thing in common. What do they all have in common? There are different types of readings. Each one has its own uh, characteristics or features, but they have one thing in common. What is it? They are all, what type of, in, of interpretation they present. Reminding you of what we said before, we said that there are two types of interpretation, critical and traditional. All these ancient Jewish interpretations are traditional interpretations. They all view the Bible, especially the Torah, as originating from God. And if it comes from God, it's divine. It's the truth. It's not it's some text that belongs to the past. It has to be accurate. It has to be relevant. It has to be inspiring, even for later generations, because God did not speak to a limited uh, community of people at some point back then. It's God. And if God is, is the author, so this is a text that has very, very, it's very different in nature and doesn't belong to one time or one place. It's a timeless composition. 
And in that sense, they all have, uh, they all share this idea. However, it doesn't mean that all these types of interpretations are identical because different authors are facing different challenges and that leads to adopting different types of interpretation. So we can speak and try to characterize what would be the unique way or the what would be more typical for uh, books that belong to the Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha in the way they understand the text. We can talk about certain translations. What are their features? What are the issues that they're facing when they translate a text? And what are the main obstacles they're trying to deal with? What are the main challenges that bother them? And this is true for each one of the items that I, you have here on, the, on your list. And obviously, even within each one of these categories, we can talk about different specific nuanced types of uh, ways or methods that people interpret the text. In the remaining minutes of today's class, I wanna talk about two important dominant uh, types of interpretations that existed in Jewish antiquity. And I wonder, one of them belongs to what we call the Jewish Hellenistic literature. And then we'll talk briefly about rabbinic literature. So the, the first person belonging to the Jewish Hellenistic literature is the figure or, or the writings of Philo. So the, the, he's the first figure I wanna uh, briefly discuss and also explore a little bit, how did he understand the Bible? He will become very important due to the impact that he had on later interpretations, not only Jewish interpretations. So we'll start with talking about Philo. Who was Philo? Where did Philo live? Anybody? Uh, yes. Wasn't he in Egypt? I don't remember. Excellent. I yeah, first perfect. Century? Very good. Very good. So Philo was from Alexandria. Big city in the Hellenistic world. The city of Alexandria was established by, by Alexander the Great in the fourth century BCE. But Philo did not live during the Greek period. He's, he belongs to the Roman period, but still influenced by the Hellenistic culture, language and culture. So where, who was Philo? Where did he live? And when did he live? Philo was born in Alexandria, where there was a very, very big Jewish community. In Alexandria, there were three big, uh, we can talk about the population of Alexandria divided into three parts. There was one big part of locals, Egyptians. There were many, many Greeks who decided to settle in Alexandria. And there was also a very, very large Jewish community. People uh, suggest that it was probably close to 1 million Jews that lived in Alexandria. Just imagine, we're not talking about a, a tiny village or a tiny congregation. It was a ginormous Jewish community. And this is where Philo was born. Philo was very influenced by his uh, Greek surrounding, by the Hellenistic uh, culture around him. He probably spoke Greek. We're not even sure if he knew Hebrew. Uh, and he was not just invested in understanding Jewish writings, but also very, very, very much influenced by uh, the Hellenistic culture in general, by non-Jewish uh, literature in general. Philo had a very famous brother, very wealthy guy. He used to collect the misin, the customs, the taxes for the Roman Empire. He was very wealthy, but nobody remembers his name now because money is not something that makes you be remembered forever. But Philo was the scholar. And you see that it's worth being a very important scholar because people remember Philo for many, many centuries, even though at his time, he was probably not as famous. Philo lived between the years minus 50 
uh, I'm sorry, from the year minus 20 to the year plus 50. Okay, so from BCE to CE. Uh, and he was mainly, if we wanted to say what was he mainly known for, he was a very important Jewish philosopher. But he was not just a philosopher. He wrote his philosophy also in connection to the Bible. One of the most important ideas that Philo introduces is understanding the Torah as an allegory. And here we need to uh, come explain or uh, say a few words about the idea of allegory before we go back to Philo. So let's start by understanding what is metaphor and what is an allegory. Maybe we'll start with the word metaphor. What is a metaphor? When I say that I'm writing, I'm using an, a metaphor in my speech or in a text that I'm writing. What is a metaphor? Any idea, any suggestions? Okay, I'll help you out. Uh, what is the metaphor? Sometimes when I'm writing, I'm giving a speech or I'm writing a book and I wanna make a certain point clear. What I would do is I employ terms or uh, uh, words from a different uh, uh, realm or from a different world that helps me understand or, or convey or uh, ex explain myself better. I'll give you an example. In the Torah, uh, it says when Am Yisrael leaves Egypt, when the people of Israel leaves, leave Egypt, the Torah says, al I carried you on wings of eagle. Now, does that mean that God is an eagle and that the Israelites were on its wings? This is a metaphor. It's not supposed to be taken literally. The Torah is employing some uh, words that belongs to the realm, to science, to nature, right? From the eagle's uh, experiences in order to give us a certain sense. What is this metaphor trying to convey? Why do you suppose the Torah is saying that God took us on wings of eagle? He was not an eagle and we were not on his wings. So, so in what way, what idea is this metaphor trying to convey or to, uh, to uh, emphasize? What do you feel when I say that? God took us on wings of eagle. What point is that trying to say? It's a metaphor to make us understand that what? That when the Jews left Egypt, what? They were safe. They were protected. Right, they were safe. Right, exactly. They felt secure. It was a very convenient journey. First class, not the economy. Business class, right? It was very smooth. It was very quick. We can think of all sorts of ideas, but it's a metaphor. You're not supposed to take this literally. It's trying to convey a certain idea, but to, we, we can understand that idea better when we use, uh, when we uh, borrow words that belong to some other uh, field or come from a different world. So this is a metaphor. Allegory, some scholars say, it's an extended form of metaphor. Metaphor is very local, like this particular verse where it says, I took you on wings of eagles. It's a very local comparison. But sometimes you can write an entire composition you're using language, you're borrowing words that belong to one realm of life, but you really are trying to say something totally different, right? You can tell a story about the jungle, but think about modern economy or of that, right? So you're, you're using, you're demonstrating your idea using a world that belongs to one realm, but you're actually trying to say something different. You're trying to uh, express or deliver a certain message, but you feel that through this allegory, it might become more clear. 
Philo is one of the most important uh, figures in using, in a, in a sense, we could almost say he was the first one who uh, came up with this brilliant idea that the Bible, and particularly the Torah, should also be read in some cases as an allegory. Why? Why did Philo uh, decide to adapt, to adopt the allegorical way of understanding the Bible? So in a few words, we'll say, Philo was a philosopher, very rational thinker. And when he reads the stories of the Bible, specifically stories in the Bible, he feels many of these stories just cannot be taken literally. They just make no sense. They talk about God in a way that is just it is not accurate from an uh, from rational, from a philosophical perspective, right? God has human organs, right? Anthropomorphism, right? He can't have human features because he's God. He's beyond that. It's just impossible. He's doing things that just don't fit God. He's described in terms that just don't make sense. So Philo says, if I take this literally, it will be just negating. It will contradict what I think from a rational that it contradicts my rational uh, knowledge, my philosophical understanding of the world and of God. So Philo says the only way to escape that trap is to say that some of the descriptions, some of the stories in the Bible should not be taken literally. They should only be read and understood as an allegory. It's, it's just trying to give us a certain, to deliver a certain idea or a certain message, but it should not be taken in a literal sense. So if God is described as having human features, it's not because God has those hands or nose or mouth or so on. It's just trying to give us a sense because it makes it easier for us to picture God if we use terms that are more close and more familiar to us as human beings. So this is what Philo was doing. He read the Bible as an allegory. Philo was using allegories both when it comes to stories in the text, but also to commandments. However, when he reads a story, he might say, the story didn't really happen. The description is not real. It's just a metaphorical idea. It's just an allegorical description. When it comes to commandments, he might say, yes, it has this metaphorical idea, but he probably would still feel that the commandment needs to be fulfilled in a literal sense. Let's talk, for example, about circumcision. He didn't say that the commandment to circumcise your kid is just an allegorical idea. He would take a knife and would uh, uh, circumcise his son if he was eight days old. He might say that it also has an additional layer of understanding. But when it comes to stories, Philo would say, it can't be taken literally. It must be read as an allegory. So if we're trying to understand this, I think this is a very important step that he's taking. Do not understand the Bible literally, read it as allegory. Let me ask you a question. Is reading the text of the Torah as an allegory, is this something that we would view as a critical way of reading the text or as a traditional way of reading the text? Was Philo a traditional interpreter or a critical interpreter by understanding the Bible allegorically? I feel like that's a bit that depends because some allegories may be acceptable in a traditional context and some may be beyond the, like okay, kind of good, outside good, of the camp. Good. Very good. So I think, I think that this is a, not a simple answer to, not a simple question to answer, because I think that the, the definition of a critical interpretation has to do with the original meaning of a text. So if I'm trying to read a text that was composed as an allegory and I'm read, understanding it as an allegory, great. 
I got the point of that text. That will be a critical way of reading the text. Critical is tracing the original meaning of a text. But if I'm trying to take a text that was not meant to be read as allegory, and I'm reading it as allegory because I want to defend the text, because I want to make the text sound more reasonable, here I'm already being traditional. And in that sense, I think Philo was a very important traditional interpreter of the text. He's mainly traditional and less critical because he's not trying to read the text as an allegory because he feels this is what the text really must say from a literal, from a linguistic perspective. He thinks that this text has to be true. It has to be accurate because he feels this text comes from God. And because he feels this text comes from God, he's not willing to say, okay, so this is just a primitive idea how people thought about God. He tries to make sense of this text. He wants to uh, defend the text in an apologetical manner in order for the text to remain divine. So Philo is maybe a philosopher. He's very rational in his approach. But when he comes to understand the text, he's traditional because his main goal is to understand how this text is true, to make sense of the text, to defend the text, and not to describe the text as some primitive ancient document that does not present the truth. His uh, uh, amazing conclusion was that if we understand the Bible as allegory, we can overcome that obstacle. So Philo is one very important representative of the Jewish ancient world, a very significant contribution to how people in antiquity understood, understood the Bible. So a person like Philo, a philosopher, decided the best way to understand the Bible is to read it as metaphor, to read it as allegory, because if we do that, we can make sense of the text. If we read it literally, it will contradict our philosophical or rational understanding of what the Bible is saying. Philo is one school of thought, one important uh, way or mode that Jews came up with how to understand the Bible. In the remaining uh, five, six minutes that we have, I wanna talk about uh, another another mode of interpretation, and that is the one that the rabbis introduced in their presentation. Uh, just if you have time later, I'll send it to uh, Kyla so you can see it later. In the presentation, you have here an example from uh, Philo's understanding or his way of reading the Bible, and this is take his example is taken from the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, if you recall, God tells Cain that he's going to be wandering all over, and uh, Cain. Uh, please God, and it says he, he's asking him to forgive him. And the very end of the story, it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of northeast of Eden. In Hebrew, it reads, So Philo elaborates in this text, and I think it's a very uh, important text that demonstrates, here you have two of the, the next few uh, slides, that demonstrate how did Philo think the text should be read? Because Philo says there, I'm just uh, summarizing in a word or two and you can read it for yourself. Philo says, this text can't be taken literally. When it says that Cain left or went away from the presence of God, it can't be something that could be taken literally because God is everywhere and God doesn't have a face. So it can't say that he left from the face of God because God is everywhere. And, Cain, and Philo therefore says, it must be understood as a form of allegory, or it has to be an, a metaphorical expression. Cain did not leave anywhere. He stood still, but he left the presence of God in some metaphorical or symbolic uh, meaning. 
That's Philo's perspective, understanding the Bible as allegory. But the prevailing, the more famous, the more dominant way of understanding the text, what we're more familiar with is what we hear from uh, Chazal in rabbinic literature. And for this purpose, we'll describe briefly the idea of pshat and drash, mainly drash. Uh, if I want to describe how did the rabbis read the Bible, and I don't want to get into all the texts and read and provide too many examples, just say a very general statement. I would say the way the rabbis read the text followed their unique method that is called drash. They are reading the text following this drash method. And what is midrash? What is drash? What is it really? In a literal sense, it means to seek for the, for the meaning of something. But when I'm trying to talk about the type of interpretation, what bothered the rabbis? What was the challenge that the rabbis were facing? And how did they overcome that challenge? The rabbis were not big philosophers. And what bothers them is not to make sense of the text from a philosophical perspective. They're not showing us, they're not uh, revealing a very, uh, any big uh, challenge in the sense of making the sense, the text more rational. That they're not Philo, they're not trained in a Greek or a Hellenistic culture, and they're not trying to defend the text in that way. What bothered the rabbis mainly was how to apply the text, and especially from a legal perspective. Let's give an example. Uh, the Bible says, on Shabbat, lo esh Shabbat. You should not light fire on Shabbat after uh, uh, on this on the seventh day, right? Let me ask you a question. What about electricity? Is one allowed to to use electricity on Shabbat according to the Torah? So let's ask. Let's talk about this from a critical or from a traditional perspective. So what would a critical scholar say? I ask him, can one light can one use electricity on Shabbat? What would he say? I'm asking a professor in the Bible department. What would the Bible say about electricity on Shabbat? I think he would tell me something very simple. He would say to me, get out of my office. You know why? Because you're asking a stupid question. At the time of the Bible, there was no electricity. Moses didn't have a clue of electricity. He wasn't thinking about it. Back then, people used to use rocks in order to make fire. And that's what the Torah is saying. Beyond that, I cannot tell you. It's just an imaginary idea. Just leave me alone. That's what a scholar would say. I'm trying to understand the original meaning of the text. The original meaning, the original intention of the text had nothing to do with modern electricity. It didn't think about cars, and it didn't think about electricity, and it didn't think about all sorts of other issues that might come up later on. But from a traditional perspective, that's not a solution. Because from a traditional perspective, in a few days, it's Shabbat. I need to know, am I allowed to use electricity or not? So the rabbis, if I had to define what the rabbis are doing, the rabbis were trying to understand the text mainly. They're traditional in the sense that they, un they understand the word of God as a timeless composition that is supposed to be something that we can actually practice in every generation. And in order to do that, we need to read into the Bible our ways of treating our current reality. So we don't use rocks anymore, but we use electricity. So what would the Torah say about electricity? What would the Torah say about cars rather than oxes and, and cows, right? What would the Torah say about all these things? I think in essence, this is what the rabbis are trying to do when they're using their drash. They're trying to see how we apply the laws 
of the Bible in current realities, especially when it comes to halacha, to laws. How do we fulfill the mitzvot in later generations when reality changes, when new, new uh, situations emerge or new uh, complexities arise? What do we do? This is what the rabbis were doing. It's also a traditional way of understanding the text, but from a very, very different perspective. And this is demonstrating that traditional interpretations have something in common. They view the text as a timeless text. They don't want to leave the text in the past. They want to see how we think about the text. We want to defend the text. We want to apply the text. But it could be, be done in different ways. For Philo, the main obstacle was to see how we make sense of the text from a rational perspective. We want to understand how the text would not contradict our philosophical ideas of the world or of God. For the rabbis, it was mainly how to fulfill the laws, how to apply these laws in their times. Um, I'll add one more minute and I'm done. This is when it comes to laws. When the rabbis are deciphering stories, they're doing something that is a little different, but also of the same. They want to feel that the Bible is not something that belongs to the past, that it speaks to us, that the stories are meaningful to us, that when we read a story in the Bible, we feel that it's also something that we can use in our times, it can solve our dilemmas, our uh, existing dilemmas of our daily life. It's supposed to solve, it's supposed to be meaningful and inspiring, not just for people back then, but also for us. In the presentation here too, uh, you can see the two schools of interpretation. Rabbi Ishmael on the one hand was more logical. The other one was Rabbi Akiva. So here you have one example that describes the approaches of these two scholars, but what they had in common is that they were both traditional in the sense that they both had one task, to see how we apply the laws and how we make the text inspiring for future generations. So if I want to summarize what we've done today, we started by talking about the ideas of traditional versus critical interpretations. We saw that traditional scholars in contrast to critical scholars are not just happy with understanding the original meaning of the text. They want to see how we make this text relevant, how we make this text timeless. That's the general idea. And this is gonna be true for both Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Speaking more specifically about the Jewish type of interpretation, we explored the large, wide variety of texts in which we can find Jewish interpretation. We said they're all traditional in their orientation because they all view the words as the words of God. They all view the Bible as divine and as a timeless text. Nevertheless, they are different in the way that they read the Bible because each type of thinker might have different challenges. Philo, who was raised in a Greek Hellenistic culture, was mainly concerned with making the text more rational. His solution was, let's read the Bible as allegory. The rabbis were more invested in seeing how we apply the laws, how we make the texts and the stories more meaningful. And their mode of interpretation was the drash. Through careful, uh, detailed analysis of the text, sometimes they impose their own ideas. They want to get something out of the text beyond what the text might really say in order to solve and answer their practical dilemmas of how to live the Bible and how to make the Bible an inspiring text. Next session, we'll move to Christianity. And from then, we'll, the way we'll be ready for talking about Jewish and Christian polemics of how to read the text. But that is going to be only later on. Kyla, back to you. <laughs> All right.
I want to say thank you very much for next one first class. As always, you can find out more about Dreamship classes on our website. I showed the link in chat. And if you want, to, if you have any questions for doc, for Dr. Gaffney, whether you're watching, you can ask now, or if you realize later, um, feel free to send them to Drisha, and we'll pass them along to him. And otherwise, see you all next week at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. on Zoom and on Facebook Live. Take care.